So this week we are returning to our study in Ephesians, um, and, and I just wanted to go over the context really quickly. So in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is really addressing what it means to live as Christians, what it means to walk in love. He says in verses 1 to 14, we are called to walk in love as Christ loved us. And then later on, he tells us to walk in light. And when he says walk in light, he's referring to walking in holiness. So like I said, this section includes Paul's second command in how to walk in wisdom. Ross talked about making the best use of time and understanding what the will of the Lord is. And then this week, Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we look at at this command compared to the other commands, it's a little different. I mean, it's, it's not anything different from Scripture. We know that being drunk with wine or anything is a sin, but it's not as general as the other commands are. I mean, we get walk in love, and then he gives us all the sin that we're not supposed to walk in. And then he says, walk in light, do not partner with sons of darkness. He says, walk in wisdom, understand what the will of the Lord is, but do not get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And that's going to be our two points today, what it means to be filled with wine and what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So at first, we see, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery in verse 18. And that sounds pretty straightforward, right? I mean, if there's anything that that Christians are known for, this is one of those things, right? When someone talks about a hypocritical Christian, they're either talking about them gossiping or treating others how they're not, how the scriptures tell us not to treat people, or we're talking about someone that's a partier that does whatever they want, and they get drunk with whatever they want. Um, So Christians are known because we're not supposed to get drunk with wine. This is also confusing because this is really the only indication or or specific time that Paul talks about drunkenness in, in the letters to the Ephesian church, which means that most inter- most commentators don't see this as something that the Ephesian church was struggling with. This whole letter is all about understanding what the gospel is and understanding how we live because of that. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about uh, theology, and then 4 through 6 is all about the practical side of that theology, what we do when we get that understanding of the scriptures. So why is Paul talking about such a specific sin? Why is Paul addressing this in this way? What he's doing here is he's using a specific example to make a larger point. He's using drunkenness to charge them to not make, or to not let anything have control of their minds. He's using the main example of the day, which was wine, in order to tell them to not let, not make it a habit for them to let other things control them. Wine was the staple drink of this world. Jesus turned water into wine. It applies to all forms of, of all forms of alcohol. If he was talking to millennials, he'd probably say, don't get drunk with some IPA or double IPA. Um, He's using it as a symbol to make a larger point. Don't let anything other than the Spirit control your mind. Because drunkenness, he's using drunkenness specifically, leads to debauchery or a wild lifestyle. Drunkenness leads to the foolishness that Paul is telling us not to walk in. We've all seen the videos of people acting foolish because they're drunk. We've seen, if you're a football fan, you've seen Buffalo Bills fans jumping jumping through tables on Sunday mornings. 
Um, we've seen people who can't talk or think clearly, or even more serious, we've heard stories about drinking and driving and the effects of that. Paul's larger comparison here, though, is the dullness that comes from drunkenness. Drunkenness lowers our inhibitions. It lowers our self-control. It lowers our ability to think clearly. And this imagery should all paint a familiar picture for Christians. It should paint the picture of the prodigal son. We all know that story, that he foolishly, he gets the inheritance from his father, disrespects his father in doing so, and then he foolishly squanders everything he's gained because he's living a wild lifestyle that the Bible says is debauchery. And eventually he gets to the point where he's desiring what pigs eat. And for the Jewish community, we know that that is, I mean, that is about as low as you can get. You desire to be at the place of an unclean animal. Paul is telling the Ephesians and telling us to not live a wild and undisciplined life because that leads to a ruined life, either in this life or the next. Either we we screw up our life now, which would almost be more of a blessing than screwing up our life in eternity. But like I said, ultimately, the focus is is not on wine or even on drinking itself, which we know to be a sin. What he's doing is contrasting a worldly filling with a spiritual one. He's using a specific example to make a larger point. I mean, you could apply this to, to other things. You could apply it to... Uh, he could say, don't get high, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't, don't let your addiction to social media control you, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't let your pornography addiction control you, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't let anything else take hold of your mind and your desires except for the Spirit. Don't fill yourself with the world, but be filled with the Spirit. He's not contrasting just wine with the Spirit. What he's doing is contrasting foolishness with wisdom. One commentator puts it this way. He says, being drunk with wine <clears throat> with wine, leads to dissipation or overindulgence, but being filled by the Spirit leads to joy and fellowship and obedience to the commands of the Lord's will. The one who is filled or we, the one who is filled by the Spirit is characterized by this filling. We are characterized by what controls us. When we call someone a workaholic, they're being characterized by their, by almost their addiction to work. Their need to be doing something, whether it's out of fear of man or, or love of money or some other reason, we're always characterized by something. And as Christians, we should be characterized by being filled with the Spirit and the things that come from that. So it leads us to our second point. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Verse 18, But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Because, I mean, that's a big, broad saying that we hear about the Spirit all the time, but what does this specific instance mean? First, we'll start with what he is not saying. It's This is not a once-and-for-all command. He's not talking about the indwelling of the Spirit that occurs when believers profess faith in Christ. When we 
make Jesus our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. But that's not what Paul is talking about. It's not a once and for all command. Um, it's more <clears throat> it's more like watering plants. When you water plants, you don't just do it once. Otherwise, they die. Unless they're succulents, but every analogy falls apart at some point. Um, but it's more like watering plants is a continual thing. We just bought a house, and you can tell that the previous owner did not water the lawn because it is pretty much dirt at this point. So it's a continuous watering that will bring life back to that dirt and back to the dead grass that fills our lawn. What he's also not doing is urging us to enter into a new experience. He's not urging us to create a situation that makes us more spiritual. If you've gone to Hume Lake, you know of that camp high that happens when you're up in the mountains. He's not talking about trying to, to get ourselves to set up or to set up ourselves for a, a filling of the Spirit by going off to some mountain, which those things are important. We see Jesus do that in order to meet with God. But Paul is not talking about some big charismatic experience because only God can create those moments. Only God can do that, and he can do that whether you're in traffic on your way to Los Angeles or you're walking your dog or you're on top of a mountain. What he is saying, though, is he's giving us a passive command. He's saying, let yourselves be filled with the Spirit. This isn't some moment that we can create on our own. We have to allow the Spirit to fill us. And this can be rejected. In Romans, we see Paul talk about people that so desire their own selfish things, they so desire to do what they want, that God gives them over to their desires, and in doing so, they're rejecting the Spirit. In Galatians, Paul talks about people who attempt to deceive the Spirit, so we know that this can be rejected, that we have to allow this to happen to us. Ultimately, what he's talking about, just like um, every single letter in the New Testament essentially is talking about what the Bible itself is talking about is sanctification or that process of becoming more like Christ. That process of becoming who we are in Christ already. This doesn't mean that um, that we're when we're utterly controlled by the Spirit, this doesn't mean that we become robots, but the Spirit leads us to become more like Christ, to act more like Christ. When we talk about someone who's filled with anger, we're talking about them being controlled by their anger, right? And scripture uses this all over the place. When the disciples were filled with sorrow, or the disciples were filled with sorrow when Jesus said he was going to leave them in John 16. In Luke 5, when Jesus heals the paralyzed man, the people are filled with fear, and that fear leads them to worship. When Jesus heals the man with the withered hand in the next chapter in Luke, in Luke 6, the religious leaders are filled with fury, and that fury leads them to plot against Jesus. So this, this understanding is throughout Scripture, this concept is throughout Scripture, and it clearly applies here. One podcast I listened to this week in, in talking about this um, said, compare drunkenness with, the spirit, with being filled with the Spirit, because drunkenness dulls our senses, it lowers our inhibitions, it stops our self-control while being filled with the Spirit heightens our awareness to righteous things. It raises our self-control and produces the other fruits of the Spirit. 
And that brings us to the, to the final point as far as what it means to be filled with the Spirit is the difference between the indwelling of the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit occurs when we declare Christ our Lord and Savior. The Spirit comes upon us and reshapes who we are. One way to put it is, is to say that the believer has all of the Spirit. When we're being filled with the Spirit, though, the Spirit has all of the believer. It's the next step in that process that we are controlled by the Spirit. And what that looks like sometimes is when we're convicted of our sin. That is the Spirit controlling us and telling us that we have acted against what God's commands are. So how are we filled by the Spirit? In Colossians 3, we see a pretty a, a parallel passage to Ephesians 5. It's a similar command, but Paul uses different words. And we'll, when we compare the two, what we're doing is we're interpreting Scripture with Scripture, which if you took, or if you watched Nathan's um, hermeneutics on Wednesday nights during quarantine, he talked about this, that when we interpret Scripture, we should use other Scripture to interpret it as well. That way we can get a clearer picture of what God is calling us to do. So in Colossians 3, it says this, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What Paul is exhorting the Colossians and us again to do here is to let the word dwell within us. It's the same concept as Ephesians 5 that when we allow the word to dwell in us, we're yielding to the spirit. We're submitting to the spirit and allowing the spirit as well to, f to fill us. It, these things happen in conjunction with one another. And you can't know the word of God. You can't, or sorry, you can't know the will of God if you don't know his word, right? If we don't know scripture, we can't know what God wants us to do, and we can't even know God. You can't know a person unless you actually talk to them. We can make assumptions about people, sure, or even looking at their words helps us to better know someone, and that's what scripture is. It's God revealing himself to us in a sufficient way, because we don't need anything other than the texts in scripture to know who God is and what he has called us to do. Sure, we can't know everything about this world, but we can know what is sufficient for salvation in Scripture. We also know what is sufficient for sanctification, that process of becoming like Christ in Scripture. Philippians 2, 12 to 13, expands more on this concept of, of the Spirit filling us. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Basically what he's saying is that we work alongside God in our sanctification. That it is through the Spirit that God controls us and leads us to become more like Christ. And we make those decisions, those righteous or unrighteous decisions along the way. So why are we called to be filled by the Spirit? We're called to be filled by the Spirit in order to understand and fulfill the will of the Lord. We're allowing God's control 
over our lives or over our lives instead of resisting his control. And this provides enablement for to make the most of every opportunity. This enables us to act exactly how God wants us to act at every opportunity. It allows us to fight the desires of the flesh. That's why it's so important for us to be filled with the Spirit. When we walk in wisdom, we are being characterized by the Spirit's control, and we are submitting to the Spirit, and ultimately we're submitting to God in doing so. But Paul doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just say, don't be drunk, be filled by the Spirit, and then moves on to his next point. What he does is he tells us what results from us being filled with the Spirit. Because he does the same with wine. He says, don't be drunk because that is debauchery. That leads to a wild and undisciplined life. He says, be filled with the Spirit. And these are the results. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. These five, they're not really commands, but these five results are all what happens when we're filled with the Spirit. They're almost the fruits of the Spirit-filled life. Yeah, we know know, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, all of those are, are fruits of the Spirit, but these are how we should be acting because we are filled by the Spirit. They're practical actions that fit perfectly in the practical side of Ephesians uh, 4 to 6. These are outflowings of us being filled by the Spirit. We won't do them perfectly. As, as I looked through this list this week, I definitely looked at every single one. I was like, yep, don't do that all the time. Nope, not that one. And it just reminds us that we aren't there yet. It's that almost but not yet concept. But these are a sign of, of salvation and should give us assurance of our faith when we do see the areas of our life that we live these out. So we're going to break down each one of these and talk about what this looks like. The first, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What he's not doing here is calling church to be like a musical because no one would talk to me because I can't sing. Um, what he is doing here, though, is he's talking about corporate worship. The first two results are all about corporate worship. This one is kind of an aspect we don't think about a lot. We address one another. When we sing worship songs to God, we're also singing them to each other. We're reminding each other of the truths of Scripture through song. Because corporate worship is not just singing to God like Craig talked about this morning or earlier in the service, but it's also we're with the angels and we're with one another and it's, it's this big corporate event. We're called to sing with each other and to each other. We're reminding ourselves of the truths of Scripture. As Colossians 3.16 says, we're admonishing and teaching one another in all wisdom through song. So when next time we're, we're in a time of worship, I urge you to, to stop and to listen to the words that are being sung. Don't do it all at once. That might catch the worship leader off guard. Um, but stop and listen and remind yourself of the words that are being sung, because this is not a concert. It's not just a big sing-along thing, but we are teaching and reminding ourselves of the gospel. And that brings us to the next result, that singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. 
What he's doing here is reminding us of the focus of worship, that it's not about what we're doing after lunch or what we're going to do later today, but what it's doing is reminding us that we are to worship to God. Our focus should be on God and, and what he has done for us. That's who we're singing to. Like I said, it's not a sing-along. We are worshiping God for what he has done and giving thanks, which is the next one, giving thanks always and for everything to the, to the God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit-filled life results in overwhelming gratitude to God for what he has done, whether it's provision, protection, the gospel, or even on a larger scale, our own salvation. We should always be thankful to God for what he's done. And the ways that we can do that better, because I've tried to work through this on my own, finding ways that I can be more thankful to God. The ways that we can do that is through a prayer journal, because when you write down your prayers and then go back and look at them, we can see how those were answered. Otherwise, if you're like me, you just forget what you asked for, what you prayed for someone else. There's a prayer app out there called Echo Prayer that I highly recommend because it'll, it'll bring those prayers back to you daily, what you are praying about. I actually have a cool story about that app. I had it for a time um, and put all these prayer requests in, and then I did the prayer journal, and the prayer journal wasn't working, so I returned to the app, and it had all my old prayer requests because I made an account, and I'm sitting and working, and I get a notification from it, and I had put in a prayer request from when we were in a staff meeting at the beginning of the hiring process for the worship director that God would bring someone to, um, to our church that is worshipful and, and is per- a perfect fit for our church. And I get that notification, and Thomas is sitting in the de- desk next to me after he had been hired and after he was already working as our worship director. And it's just these kind of moments that come from reminding ourselves of what we've prayed for. It reminds us to be thankful to God that he does answer our prayers that he is the one who saves and he is the one who provides. And that brings us to our last result, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a transitional phrase that, it, that is also heading into the next section because I would argue that 522 to 69, which we see as the submission section, is all about, all about walking in wisdom. It's all about what Paul is calling us to do. And so here he's almost saying this is a result, and then it'll, then he expands it even more to show us what it looks like to submit to one another in a bunch of different relationships. But ultimately, what submission is, is putting others before ourselves, putting aside our pride and our selfishness, and putting on humility, and living as Christ lived, who, I mean, he is the supreme model for submission. He came to earth in submission to the Father and died on the cross for our sins so that God could receive the glory. And when we submit out of reverence for Christ, we're doing so so that God can receive the glory. That ultimately, it, it is all about God, and it is a mutual submission within the family or within the church body. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this command? How does it apply to us today? The first is to judge ourselves by this standard, not others. We should look at this list and see where we are faulty, where we don't meet God's standard, not where others meet. It's like the the apologetics class that Nathan teaches, that the apologetics isn't so that we could go out and debate other people, but it's to affirm our faith, to strengthen our own faith in God. And this is the same thing here, that we should look at this list 
and see where we are lacking. The second thing that we can do with this is to understand that it is a command, not a suggestion. We are not free to ignore this. We are called and commanded to be influenced by the Spirit and nothing else. To let the Spirit control our decision-making, not our own sinfulness. The third, way we, the third thing we can do with this is to see that it is a plural command to the whole church. None of us is to get drunk. None of, or all of us are to be filled by the Spirit. It is not for the few or for the elite, but for every single member of the church. It is also, it is also not a passive command, or it is, it is a passive command, sorry. It is a passive command. We are to let this happen to us. We are to submit to the Spirit. And finally, we are to understand that it is a present tense command. It is for right now. It is not for when we first believed or in the future at some point, but it is for today and tomorrow and the next day, that every day we are to be continuously filled by the Spirit. We're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, sing and make melody to the Lord, give thanks always and for everything to God, and to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is what it means to walk wisely. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for the truth that's in it. I pray that we would continuously fill ourselves with the Spirit. That, and out of that, we would address one another as you call us to do so. That ultimately, we'd be thankful to you for everything you have done for us. Thank you for your Son and for his sacrifice on the cross and the fact that we can live in peace and righteousness with you. In Jesus' name, amen.